1: Our Christian faith is the invisibility of God. The God of the Bible is described as a majestic, radiant being who dwells in unapproachable light. His glory fills the heavenly realms with such overpowering radiance. That the holiest angels have to cover their faces even to be in his presence. This awesome creator God, this awesome ruler God... He is the source of everything in existence and he rules over all things actively. It is by his power that every atom in the universe holds together and and keeps from flying apart. It is by God's power that the very being of all creation in the world has come. Such a majestic God is also the source of all beauty... The saints and angels are arrayed in concentric circles, it seems, in, in the heavenly realms around God, constantly celebrating his beauty and his omnipotence. And, and they're doing this with incessant praise. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. But this radiant, beautiful, powerful God is invisible. And that's hard for us. 1 Timothy 1.17 says now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one ever has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Our eyesight, our physical eyesight, is the source of much of what we know about the universe. And by our eyesight, light floods into our minds in various colors and shapes. And teaches us what the physical world around us is like. We get so much information from our eyesight. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty two, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole, whole body will be full of darkness. Now in CS Lewis's classic Till We Have Faces one of the characters named Psyche the Greek word for soul talks about the strong feelings of desire quote it was when i was happiest that i longed the most do you remember the color and the smell and looking across at the gray mountain in the distance and because it was so beautiful it set me to longing, always longing, somewhere else there must be more of it. Everything seemed to be saying, Psyche, come, but I couldn't, not yet, come. I felt like a bird in a cage when all the other birds of its kind are flying home. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing. To reach that mountain. To find the place where all the beauty comes from. Do you think it meant nothing? All this longing. The longing for home. For now death feels not like going. But going home. It's beautiful isn't it? There's a source of all this beauty. And we want to go there. We want to see it. We want to see God. But this hidden God. We have to see now. Only by faith. This hidden God, this invisible God is the source of all this beauty, all the life, all the creativity, all the love and peace and joy that's ever to be found in the universe. God is the source of it all. To be able to see him would be the perfection of sight itself, but we cannot. God is the invisible creator, the invisible sustainer, the invisible emperor of all visible things that fill our eyes. But none of this is an accident, this longing to see what we cannot see. There is a spiritual realm around us. We talked about it last week. Remember in Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Rend means to rip, to tear. Make a tear in the heavens and come down. We talked about it in terms of the baptism of Jesus. Remember when Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open in Mark's gospel and the Holy Spirit descended. We talked about it in terms of Stephen's Moment of death, you remember as he's being martyred in Acts 7, 55, 56, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As though there's some kind of, I don't know what to call it, a membrane or a wall or something between us and the spiritual realms. And through that membrane we cannot pass, not yet anyway. We cannot reason our way through it. We cannot fly high enough to get over it. Or search for some secret portal, like in the Narnia tale, C.S. Lewis, there's always some portal in different stories, like, of course, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. There's the wardrobe. And if you go back far enough into the closet, you'll come through into Narnia. And then we're into the spiritual realm. But there isn't such a place. God is the invisible. He is the unseen. He dwells in a spiritual realm that surrounds us. We cannot reach it. And we cannot know anything about this mysterious hidden realm... ...except that God, and here's the word, reveals it to us. That He reveals things to us. That is the word that the Bible and theologians always use. Revelation. That's the name of the final book of the Bible to which I'm going after the book of Isaiah. So pray for me, because I don't know what the book means. I know the big themes, it's the details that get me. And I'm going to preach in my usual verse-by-verse, chapter-after-chapter style, and I'm hoping by the time I get to some of those chapters that, that I'll know what they mean. So pray for me. But we're going to Revelation, but that's the word, Revelation. It is the purpose of that book, and really indeed of all Scripture, to reveal the hidden to us, to pull back the veil, the unveiling pulling back of the veil so we can see the hidden, the invisible God. But God has chosen to reveal things to us, to reveal himself to us, to communicate to us of his existence and his nature and his purposes. Now, he does this in what theologians call natural revelation, revelation in nature. So nature communicates to us. The heavens are telling the glories of God. Psalm 19 or Romans 1.20. For since the creation of of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. That's natural revelation. But God does it even better by what theologians call special revelation, by the scripture and by Jesus. The special revelation of God, by the words of the Bible, he unveils his truth through the words of the prophets. And the apostles. Amos 3, 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Now God has done this revelation most clearly in the person and work of his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is, the author of Hebrews tells us, God's effectively final word to the human race. In the past he spoke through the prophets at various times, many times, various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son... And the sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the sun is the exact representation of his being... ...sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.15. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. Now, I've talked about this before... ...but this is why I'm beginning the sermon this way. One word in the King James Version again and again... ...that just comes out again and again... ...but usually is omitted in these newer translations, is the word behold. And we're going to kind of follow the word behold here. Behold. Honestly, other than reading scripture, when was the last time you said, behold? Like imagine a housewife, behold, dinner is ready. Wouldn't that be exciting? That would be amazing. Or or a husband coming home, behold, I am here. You know, something like that. It'd be a bit odd. I mean, I think of it in terms of like a magician, maybe even an amateur magician. Behold, and out comes the rabbit out of the hat. Something like that. Behold. I don't know, you have to say it with a kind of a deep voice. Behold. But there's a sense of of something being unveiled. Something being displayed. And these English translations either just omit it entirely, or they they use the word, look. I, I, I say it like that. Look, I'm doing something great. It just isn't the same, friends. (laughs) So I'm starting a campaign. The next translation needs to keep the word behold wherever it's found. And where is it found? In Isaiah 65, it's found in the King James Version nine times in these verses. Behold, behold, behold. It's like God's unveiling some amazing things in this chapter. And we're going to look at it this week and next week. We're not getting through all of Isaiah 65 this week. But look, look across. You're not going to see it. In, I mean, ESV actually holds on to most of them, thankfully. Praise God. But, um, you know, NIV does and others don't. So in Isaiah 61, it's there twice. Uh, and, and none of the translations, I think, have it. I think KJV does. But it's literally, behold me, behold me in the Hebrew. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. And then Isaiah 65, 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. And then four times in verses 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you shall go hungry. My, behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart. But you shall cry out for pain of heart and wail of breaking of spirit. And then verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered, nor shall they come to mind. And then verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people a gladness. Nine times. God says, behold, as though he's saying to the human race, watch what wonders I'm going to unfold before you. I'm going to unveil some amazing things before your very eyes, things you have not known. You wouldn't have any other way of knowing except that I'm communicating them to you. Watch, oh human race, watch and be amazed at this. Look on with wonder at what I will display to you. So I'm going to organize this sermon and an entryway into next week's sermon, God willing. By the, these words, behold. So first, behold me. God saying, behold me as he reveals his saving grace to the Gentiles. Secondly, behold my judgments on wicked Israelites that have forsaken him for idols. In verses 2 through 7. And then thirdly, behold my servants singing while the wicked are shamed. Put to shame. Verses 8 through 16. So that's this week's message. And then next week... Behold my new universe that I am creating. And we're going to step into that and try to understand some of the most amazing and perplexing verses in the book of Isaiah. So let's begin with behold me, God's saving grace of the Gentiles. Verse 1. God allows himself here to be sought by saying behold me, behold me. The first greatest revelation in this chapter happens in verse 1 when God says twice, behold me, behold me. Look at verse 1. And I'll put in the Behold Me in in the translation. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Behold Me. Behold Me. This is the amazing grace. This is the patience. And this is the humility of God. This majestic and holy God. The incredible grace of God who presents himself with astonishing persistence and humility to the nations of the world that don't seek him or care about him at all. They've not sought him. They're not looking for him. They don't know about him. They're ignorant of him. And he's standing and saying right before them, behold me. And the verse literally says, I allowed myself to be consulted. I permitted myself to be consulted by you. In other words, God took the initiative to reveal himself and draw from the Gentiles a yearning, a desire to seek him and find him. If God does not permit himself to be consulted, if he does not permit himself to be sought, we will never seek him and we will never find him. So the initiative is with God. Now Paul, the apostle, quotes this verse in in Romans 10 and verse 20, to speak of the grace of God displayed in the amazing harvest of Gentiles into the church of Jesus Christ. Incredible grace of God. Romans ten twenty And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. He's talking there about Gentiles converted to a Jewish Messiah. Becoming grafted into a Jewish olive tree. Becoming honorary adopted sons and daughters of Abraham. They didn't know anything about these things. And and Paul's talking about this incredible Gentile harvest. that has been going on now for 20 centuries. And we're part of it. So these Gentiles, they were not seeking the true God at all. They were pursuing their idols with darkened minds. Their idolatrous worship services were exceedingly corrupt and lustful and debauched. Involving temple prostitutes and drunkenness and gluttonous revelries. God's humble persistence in revealing himself to the Gentiles is stunning. For the text says literally, behold me, behold me. And I think he does that in the preaching of the gospel of Christ. God in Christ persistently stands before the audience. And as the gospel is being preached by missionaries by evangelists God in Christ through that evangelist preaching is standing before people and saying behold me here I am in Christ ready to save you ready to be the focus of your entire existence ready to be your king your savior everything all you have to do is seek me and you will surely find me so He is sought now by Gentiles who were not seeking him before. They did not seek for him. They were not looking for him. In their villages, in their compounds, in their cities, around the world, in these unwreathed people groups around the world, they were not seeking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not seeking the true creator God. Not at all. Romans 3.11 says there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. None of them were. But God revealed himself to them. And by his sovereign spirit... ...drew them. And the first they knew about it... ...was a growing hunger and thirst inside... ...to know this God. They wanted to know him. Where did that come from? God gave it to them as a gift. And they found him through Christ. This is amazing grace. This is amazing persistence. Amazing humility to the Gentiles. To people all over the world. So the centerpiece of the gospel... ...is God. I mean honestly... God is the gospel. Behold me, God saying that to us who are previously in the darkness, now in the light. That's salvation. God unveiling himself in Christ to us. And God does the seeking first. Luke 19.10. Jesus said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And then in that incredible encounter in John chapter 4, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Remember that day she got up and and was coming to the well just to get some water. And oh no, there's someone there. She's trying to avoid all people. Not just someone, but a Jew of all things. Jewish man. She wants to get in there, get the water as quickly as she can and get home. But then he stuns her by speaking to her. And then stuns her even more by what he says to her. And little by little by little draws her to hunger and thirst for the living God. Comes to a point in the conversation when Jesus talks about his true aim in being there. He had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he had to find her. And not just her, but her Samaritan neighbors. And this is what he said. John 4, 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. He is seeking them. All over the world through evangelism and missions. He's seeking people. And through the gospel, standing before them saying, behold me, behold me. Come and worship me. And so we seek God. And we do, for the rest of our lives, hungry and thirsty to know him better. To know, like Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to know Christ. There's a hunger and a thirst, and I hope that's what drew you to worship today. You wanted to come and worship this living God. Well, that seeking and yearning, that was first in the heart of God, your Heavenly Father. And because he yearned for you, now you're yearning for him. Because he sought you, now you are seeking him. Because he loved you, now you love him. We love because he first loved us so just stop if i could just stop and apply this right here we're going to do some application right in the middle of the sermon just stop and wonder in wonder and amazement at this humble patient god who stood in front of your soul all those days persistently revealed himself to you until at last you saw him at last you loved him and you followed him through christ just stop right now and thank god for his grace in revealing christ to you by his spirit You are now seeking him because he first sought you, so give him thanks. And marvel that he has only begun to reveal himself to you. You have infinitely more to see about this God. He will be like for eternity saying, behold me. And you will never be done. So that makes heaven a very exciting dynamic place, doesn't it? We'll be learning forever. Behold me, behold me. Now, in Isaiah 65, God turns with, I think, great sadness to address the rebellious Israelites and to convict them of their persistent wickedness in rejecting this God and instead pursuing idols. So verses 2 through 7, Behold my judgments on wicked Israelites. God was amazingly patient with them as well. In verse 2, he says, All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Now, Romans 10, I think, gives us the best commentary on these verses, the best way to interpret them. Apostle Paul tells us how to interpret verse 1 and verse 2 of Isaiah 65. Paul applies verse 1 to the Gentiles and their amazing harvest into the church. But then he turns and... and, um, contrast the receptivity of the Gentiles to the hardness of the Jews. And their just consistent rejection, not universal, but almost universal rejection of Christ as their Messiah. And he's addressing that and he uses verse 2 and applies it to Israel in Romans 10.21. He says this, all day long, concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a stubborn or a disobedient and defiant people. Stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Again, in this, though, we see the remarkable patience and humility of God with Israel. For generations, through the prophets, through these messengers, God had stood before stubborn Israel like the father of the prodigal son, waiting at the end of the driveway for the son to come home, yearning with his arms spread out, wanting the prodigal to come home, and yet they were stiff necked, they refused, they were hard hearted, they wouldn't yield. They walked in evil ways. They pursued pagan religions of their own imaginations, not part of God's revelation. And yet God continues to persistently hold out his hands to them, reach out to them. But they refused. So what is the nature of this idolatry? Look at verses 2 through 7. These are evil pagan religions that had polluted Israel for centuries. They had consistently sinned right in God's face, defiantly embracing Canaanite Rituals, pagan rituals, godless rituals. Look at verse 3 and 4. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigils, who eat the flesh of pigs, and whose pots hold broths of unclean meat. So this is a paganism, a ritual ritual you know, dark occultic religion that includes repulsive practices such as necromancy and eating pig meat and other undefiled meats in defiance of God's holy law. So they're spending their nights among the graves summoning the dead in some weird way. And they're chewing and swallowing pig meat in direct defiance of the dietary regulations that God had given them and the laws of Moses. They eat the flesh of pigs... ...and whose pots hold broths of unclean meat. And their hearts are actually weirdly made proud... ...by these bizarre rituals. They're actually proud of them. It's like one of those those secret... ...occultic religions... ...where it's like higher and higher circles of knowledge. And as you went further and further... ...into these deep secrets of Satan... ...you got more and more sacred... ...in some weird occultic way. And so in verse 5 they say... ...keep away... Don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. In the KJV, this is one of the more famous translations. KJV says, Come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. Ever heard that expression? Holier than thou. That's coming right from this verse. But it's a weird context. It's talking about Jews who are doing pagan rituals and think it's making them holy. How weird is that? So they rejected God's definition of holiness choosing instead one from paganism, and their attitudes and actions were utterly repulsive and provocative to God. Verse 5, such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. It's a powerful image. Have you ever gone camping, and you make a, a, a fire, a campfire, and the wood that's available isn't the greatest. It's a little green, maybe pine, a lot of sap in it. And it's a windy day and you get this, the fire going, but it does not matter where you stand. The wind's going to find you, the smoke's. You know what I'm talking about? You, you keep adjusting your chair. You try all 360 points of the compass. And no matter where you put it, the smoke stings your eyes. I, you know, I can feel it right now. I mean, I had it recently. It's like, its man, it's awful. It's obnoxious. Or another story. This is my wife and I were missionaries in Japan and we had a neighbor, older man, Who used to burn his garbage regularly. And it did not seem to matter what the prevailing wind was. It always found our living room. It just came right in. And it had a very distinctive, acrid, nasty odor. The burning garbage. And so God is saying, these people who are living like this are smoke in my eyes and in my nostrils. They're incredibly provocative and irritating to me. Fire that keeps burning all day. Now, it's for this reason we just need to marvel at God's patience with, uh, with the reprobate. God's patience with wicked people who will not repent. Romans 9.22 says, God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. He puts up with a lot. I mean, they're stinging his eyes every day by the way they're living their lives. And he puts up with a lot. And so, But at some point, God's patience runs out. At some point, the patience is going to stop. Verse 6 and 7, Behold my judgments. God will not wait forever. At some point the day of judgment will come. Behold, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will pay back in full. I will... Pay it back into their laps. Verse 7. Both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord, because they burn sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment of their former deeds. God is a careful rep- record keeper. Romans 2 says that these people do not realize that day after day, by their stubborn unrepentance, they're storing a wrath against their so- themselves. For the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgments will be revealed. That's what he says here. God had been silent and they misconstrued the silence. They didn't understand what it meant. They said, oh, there's no God or he's not holy or he doesn't care. Or they, they, they feel justified in their actions because God doesn't seem to do anything ever. But finally, the day is coming. Behold. That's the behold here. Behold, the day is coming when the wrath of God will most certainly come. And he says, it stands written before me that this is, he uses this language Behold, it stands written. Reminds me of that famous phrase from the the movie Ten Commandments. You remember Ten Commandments and Pharaoh's there, Yule Brenner? And he would make some pronouncement, and then he would say, I'm not going to do his accent, but he would say, So let it be written, so let it be done. Remember that? not see the movie you'll see what I'm talking about so this potentate makes a statement and there's these court stenographers that are around ready to take every word from the king because that's law when the king says it well that's what the king of the universe is saying it stands written before me there's going to be a judgment day it's definitely coming it's revealed And God is going to pay back into their laps all the deeds they have done so just again I'm going to stop and do application right here Behold, God cannot be mocked. Do not misunderstand the fact that the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness in this world. Do not misunderstand that. God cannot be mocked. We will reap what we sow. And Judgment day definitely does come. Galatians six: seven. Revelation 2:23 says, "I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each person according to what He has done. Revelation 20 depicts this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. It's payback time for God at that point. And the only possible salvation there is from this meticulous, holy, just, record keeping God is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that we have. Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ now while there's time. That's our message to to Durham. That's our message to this community, to people, workplaces. Tomorrow, they're under the wrath of God if they're not Christians. Urge them to flee to Christ. Behold, my judgments are coming. It's our job to make that clear. All over the world, people are involved in wicked, idolatrous worship systems. Stone Age animistic tribes in the jungles of Papua New Guinea still offer human sacrifices to the gods, to the spirits of the jungle, and to the elemental demonic forces of the universe. It's still going on now. Hundreds of millions of Hindus follow empty demonic rituals that are offensive to God and damning to their souls. David Platt, who's president of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, writes about this in his book, *Counterculture*. Culture. The horror that came over his soul watching a Hindu ritual. This is David Platt. He said, I stood at the Bagmati River in South Asia where every day funerals are held and bodies are burned. It is the custom among these Hindu people when family or friends die to take their bodies within 24 hours to the river where they lay them on funeral pyres and set the pyres ablaze. In so doing they believe that they're helping their friends or family member, friend or family member in the cycle of reincarnation. As I saw this scene unfold before me, I stood in overwhelmed silence. For as I watched these flames overtake the bodies, I knew based on scripture that I was witnessing at that moment a physical reflection of an eternal reality. Tears streamed down my face as I realized that most, if not all, the people I was watching burn had died without ever having heard the good news of how they could have lived forever with God. End quote. This demonic ritual is a smoke burning in God's nostrils all day long. In the very next chapter of Isaiah, as God willing if we'll have time to talk about, the way the book ends, Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. 24, it says, They will go out and look upon the dead bodies... Of those who rebelled against me, their worm will not die, neither will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Christ alone can save us from that eternal fire. Now just stop for a moment. Stop for a moment. It's just easy to put the paganism out there, out in the jungles of Irian Jaya, along the uh, rivers of India, with the Hindu rituals. There is a paganism right here in America it's just obvious if you know what to look for there is a growing overt paganism in this country people who live for money for food, for sex, for sports for earthly pleasure paganism, not just in the jungles of Eranjaya or by a river in India but also in the investment offices of Wall Street also in, in restaurants in Brightleaf Square In huge sporting venues in Houston, Texas. There is paganism in these places too. And Christ alone can rescue the people who are involved in pagan worship in Wall Street and restaurants and at Super Bowls. He can rescue them from their paganism. It's not true that everyone in Wall Street, everyone at the restaurant, everyone at the Super Bowl is pagan. I'm not saying that. But many are. Because that's what their hearts are all after. That's what they're living for. Thirdly, behold my servants singing while the wicked are shamed. Verses 8 through 16. God makes distinctions. Good grapes here in this uh, these verses, good grapes are saved, the bad ones are rejected. So the Jews in verses 2 through 7 are wicked and essentially pagan, but not all Jews follow these pagan rituals. God is able to make distinctions. Not all the Jews are bad grapes. In the large cluster of Israel, there was still some juice in some of them. God found a righteous remnant among all this paganism look at verse 8 this is what the lord says as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and men say don't destroy it there's still some good in it so will i do on behalf of my servants i will not destroy them all now jesus told many parables of separation on judgment day the parable of the weed in the weeds where it's all mixed up and they want to root them up he said no wait till wait till the end and he will separate the wheat from the weeds. And he'll gather the wheat into his barn. But he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Or the parable of the dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a net let, let down into the lake. And it caught all kinds of fish. And then the fishermen sit down on the, on the pier. And they separate the good fish from the bad. They collect the good fish in baskets. But they throw the bad away. Or again, the sheep and the goats. In Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory... And he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another... ...as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So also in verses 8 through 16... ...Isaiah reveals with the repeated word, behold... ...God is able to make distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon, verse 10, will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. So for the remnant, the, the genuine believing Jews in this and that extends then to the elect around the world, I think, God promises to produce descendants who will inherit the mountains of Judah and dwell there richly blessed. The promised land from Sharon in the west to Acor in the east will be fertile, a rich pasture land for their flocks to graze in and lie down in peace. These are old covenant images of blessing in that way. But given that Paul applies this chapter to Gentiles coming to faith in Christ... I think it's reasonable for us to look on them first as the spiritual blessings of coming to faith in Christ. The richness of the life we have in Christ. And then even better, the literal physical blessings we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe the millennium. We'll talk about that next week. (laughs) That'll be exciting. That's like two sermons in one. I have no idea how I'm going to preach the rest of this chapter in one sermon. But I'm going to try next week. We're going to try to walk through the idea of the millennium and try to come to some... Some unity and understanding in that. But in any case, whether you believe in a literal millennium or you, you believe in the new heavens and the new earth, there are rich blessings that are coming. Even physical. The righteous will inherit the earth along with all of the descendants of Abraham. In Romans 4.13 it says, Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. The meek will inherit the earth. However, there will come judgment and wrath on the bad grapes in this image. The bad grapes. Verse 11 and 12. But for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword and you will all bend down for the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. These people turned their backs on God and his rich blessings. They forsook the Lord. It was not an accident. It was a willful choice. They embraced fate and destiny and lady luck. It's kind of the way we would talk about it. Do you realize that Americans will bet, if past habits go, Americans will bet $4.7 billion on the Super Bowl or have already bet? Almost $5 billion trusting in luck and fortune to make some money. Now in this text, these people who forsook the Lord and turned their backs on that and, and embraced, uh, spread a table for fortune. and They're having a feast at, of paganism, basically. God has destined them for slaughter. He tried again and again to call out to them, but they refused to listen. And So that we have blessings and curses. And here we have again and again, through this word, behold... Look, see this revealed. Behold, how much blessing the righteous are going to receive and how the wicked will be excluded. And what's really striking here is God is telling it to the wicked who are excluded. Behold, my servants will have this blessing, but you, excluded ones, will not. And it just seems very striking, that language here. Look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you will go hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Verse 14, Behold, my servant shall shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and wail for breaking of spirit. Now, this idea of feasting in the kingdom of heaven is regularly described. And what God is doing here through the prophet Isaiah is saying, there is going to be a feast, and you are going to miss it. Now, here's the thing for God to tell us this ahead of time is incredible grace, if you see it properly. There should be a longing in the heart of outsiders right now to say, I don't want to be excluded. I don't want to miss out on the richest, most bountiful feast there could ever be in all of his. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to stay an outsider. I want to come in. I want to be invited into the feast. And I want to sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And I want to feast with Jesus. I don't want to be an outsider. But then on judgment day, he's going to say this. And he has no hesitation to make people feel regrets at that point. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, and you will be thirsty. You're on the outside. And they will live in torment, and especially pain of heart and breaking of spirit. I've thought about that. There will be bitter regrets in hell. People will remember their lives. They'll remember things about it. They'll remember that they had good things while they lived. They'll remember, I think especially, the times they heard the gospel and didn't respond. And they'll regret it. They're outsiders. Verse 15. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. You know what that means? I really believe, and others struggle with this, but I believe the redeemed will know exactly what's happening to the reprobates in hell. They'll know their names. They'll know what's happening. God's not going to hide it from us. We'll talk about that at the end of Isaiah 66, but it's openly taught. They'll go out and look on them, and we'll know. And we will vindicate the justice of God and all that. God's not embarrassed about this. He's told us ahead of time what He's going to do. This is the time of grace. This is the time when the door is open. Come in. By the way, just a little application on on the Lord's Supper. When we have the Lord's Supper, I do something as a pastor called fencing the table. And what I say if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not partake. I want them to know they're outsiders. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just saying there is no feasting apart from faith in Christ. I want them to know that. You know what? I've said this before. I want you to celebrate the next time we do the Lord's Supper. Come to faith in Christ, get baptized, come and join. I mean, yeah. But the Lord here wants the outsiders to know they are outsiders and what's going to happen. And we're going to get a new name, it says in Revelation 2:17. A transformed nature. And we will be radically different. Verse 16. So that he who blesses himself in the land... ...shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land... ...shall swear by the God of truth... ...because the former troubles are forgotten... ...and hidden from from my eyes. So we'll be done with all of our false oaths... ...done with all of our paganism. We have been transformed. We have a new name. We have a new nature. And we're going to celebrate the grace of God forever in heaven. That's what's coming And The former sorrows will be gone forever... All sorrow and sadness will flee away forever. And death and mourning and crying and pain will be gone and will be there forever. Now, verse 17 through 25 Behold, for behold, for behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth next week. We'll talk about that. I hope you see now why I did this in two weeks. There's just no way we could get through the, all of this in one week. Let me do a little more application, we'll be done. This passage, I believe, gives a clear warning to the outsiders to flee to Christ now while there's time. So if you know yourself this morning to be an outsider, you know that you're not a Christian... I'm I'm pleading with you, flee to Christ now while there's time. Come to Christ. Jesus is God's Son. He died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for all of our paganism and our idolatry and wickedness. And He took all of that wickedness on Himself and died under the wrath of God to give us a perfect righteousness by faith alone. Come to Christ. For you Christians, thank God for His persistence in saving you. He never gave up on you, and He never will. He's going to stand in front of you and say, behold me, behold me forever. And just praise God for that. And look forward to seeing his face in heaven. Just look forward to the, the beatific vision, that they, they call it. The, the beautiful vision. The source of all the beauty. Where it all came from, you're going to see him radiant and shining. God in Christ, the source of all beauty. Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says, no longer will there be any curse... The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Fourth, be sober minded about the future of the wicked. Take this seriously. I'm speaking to Christians. Look at these things. Understand the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Weep over it. Be broken over it like David Platt was. And let it motivate you toward evangelism. Let it motivate you toward missions. Don't harden your heart toward lost people in your your, uh, school, your classes, your dorm, your, your workplace, your neighborhood. Don't harden your heart. Open up. Be willing to take some abuse from them as you might lead some of them to Christ. And then next week we're going to talk about the rest of the chapter and the beauties of the coming world as God will create it. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for these incredible verses. The, just the scope, the greatness of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. The visions that are in it are so far beyond our ability to even talk about and comprehend. You are a majestic God and we want to know you. And Lord, I thank you for your grace in giving us Christ. I thank you for your grace in saving us. Oh Lord, we yearn to be instruments in your hand to redeem those that are as yet outsiders. and Invite them to come in while there's time. And God, help us to be persevering in that ministry and help us to be persevering in our thankful worship for you are the God who called us when we were outsiders in to worship and feast with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom.